Oh, it's coming. There it is. At this time, I'm going to dismiss our children for Children's Church. Your leaders will meet you out in the foyer. Pastor. We uh, have thanked a lot of people for the Christmas musical. We enjoyed it. But there's one person we need to thank that we left out. Would you uh, tell Brother Dale Marshall how much you appreciate his leadership? And just so you know, that musical was not a collection in a kit. He put all of that together, wrote the narration, and uh, did all of that, and just did a great job, and we appreciate that uh, so very much. Which reminds me, uh, thank you for your giving to our staff offering. This will be the last day you can give, so if you give that uh, designated, you can put it in the box out there in the uh, foyer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father, we think about what all we have to celebrate, but forgive us when we only celebrate one time a year. We ought to be celebrating the Incarnation every single day of the year because that's what the gospel is. You came to earth so that you could not just be a baby in a manger, but to be a man who lived a perfect life and died on the cross, was a perfect sacrifice for our sins, being raised from the dead and now reigning as Lord of all and the one who is going to come again. And so we want to get the full picture and we want to understand everything we can about you. So give us grace to do that. Open our understanding so that we know you better and we praise you more. And while we are learning more about you and being filled with your spirit, feasting on your word, cause us, Lord, to be motivated to pray more, to give more, to share more with other people, to be compassionate toward other people. I think about the people we've been praying for that are homeless, and I think about the particular person that I have. His name is Robert. And we want to pray that he would have a place to sleep tonight that would be warm and safe. We want to pray, Lord, that he would have food to eat. We want to pray, Lord, that whatever issues are leading to his homelessness, whether it's economic, or maybe it's drugs and alcohol, or maybe it's family problems, I don't know. But I pray they would be addressed. But above all, I pray for his salvation. And pray for these other ones that we're praying for, for the same things. And pray that they would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And I also pray that you would give us a heart of compassion toward them because of what Christ has done for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be witnesses for Christ, effective witnesses for Christ, taking advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel. And uh, thank you, Lord, that we have a wonderful gospel to share. But also, Lord, as we think about our church family and extended family, there are so many folks that are suffering right now, so many people that are sick. There are people where doctors, they just don't have any answers. There are people going through treatment, people going through therapy, and we want to pray for them. I pray particularly for Ruth Harden as she had surgery yesterday and pray that you would bless her and pray that she would heal properly. And uh, Father, I also think about people who are having, having marital problems. I think about people who are having problems with rebellious children. And oh, how I pray that prodigals would come home. I pray, Father, for people that struggle with loneliness. I pray, Lord, that you would address that with your presence. We just heard a song about and sang a song about Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What more could we want? 
And I pray, Father, that as we are living for the glory of God, we would be who you want us to be as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now bless this time as we look into your word. Please speak to our hearts, convict us, change us, motivate us, encourage us, correct us, whatever it is that we need. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus. And because the Bible says, as we think about gifts and giving this uh, season of the year, we uh, also remember that the Bible tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And we've been looking at some things here that maybe you don't consider this a gift, but what about the gift of confrontation? The gift of confrontation. It seems like in this world that we're constantly confronted. Well, for those of us who are saved, we're confronted by the Holy Spirit, aren't we? He's the one that lives in us, that teaches us, that gives us the ability to understand the Word of God and also to see our sin and to see our failures, to see those things we do by ignorance and also those things that we do willfully. We also know that the Bible confronts us. Every time we read it, we're confronted with who we are and who God is and what God's standard is and how we still sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are confronted by the church. The Bible tells us, for example, in Matthew 18, if you see a brother overtaken in sin, you go to him privately. You don't tattle on him. You don't ask the leaders to go after him. You go to him. And if he doesn't listen, then you go with witnesses. And if he doesn't listen, then you take it before the church. And if he won't hear the church, then he's to be put out of the church. That's very clear. Church is a place of confrontation, loving loving confrontation, not angry, not retaliatory, not vengeful or anything like that at all, but loving confrontation because we love the person who has fallen into sin and we want to see them come out of it and we want to see them be restored. We have to have the right heart. If you're married, I promise you, you are confronted from time to time with your inconsistencies, with your um, inattention, different things like that that come up. If you are a parent or if you're a child, your parents will confront you. Or as a parent, you're commanded to confront your children and to raise them in the nurture and admonition. Admonition means the warnings of the Lord. That's a confrontational word. You can't let them just go the way that they want to go and you can't go the way that you want to go. We all need confrontation. We think about even the government. If you are out driving and the speed limit says 45 and you're going 80 and you come up over a hill and you see a cop car, I can just about guarantee you there's going to be a confrontation. And we are to obey, of course, the laws of the land and we're to pray for those who are in authority over us. In other words, we live a life of confrontation. Your boss confronts you and all kinds of things like that. And God does that that we might actually be better. It's through that that we learn. It's through that that we grow. It's through that that we make progress. The old saying, practice makes perfect, is just not true. If you practice the same way, making the same old mistakes, you're not going to be any better than you were when you started. Practice is a way of correcting mistakes. It's confrontational. A coach 
might confront you about what you're doing wrong or a better way to do something. And so we ought to constantly be learning and we ought to be growing. And sometimes it is a painful thing. Now, the context of what we're going to read today, uh, think of it like this. They're in the desert at Sinai. They're still at the base of the mountain. Moses has gone up on the mountain to meet with God. And it's kind of the timeline. It's taken us so long to get from Exodus 20 to here that we might think this has been just like a long period of time. Consider this. Less than five months ago, they came through the Red Sea. Less than five months ago, they had declared, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will... uh, Praise Him and prepare Him in habitation. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. That's back in uh, chapter 15, verse 2. That was less than five months ago. You remember that uh, later on Moses came down from the mountain and he told them what God had said. We have the Ten Commandments written down for us in Exodus 20, but for them it had not yet been written. It had not yet been written. Moses has not received the tablets, and he hasn't broken them either. Back in Exodus 20, that's when he gave an oral transmission of the commandments of God. And you remember the people said, we will serve the Lord, and all the Lord has told us we will do. Okay? This has just been a matter of weeks that all of this has happened. So turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 32, and uh, let's... Start thinking about what is going on and what is happening here and how quickly things can change. How quickly things can go from good to bad, from right to wrong, from righteousness to evil. Think about this and kind of see yourself in it and see our own society and people that you know in it. Exodus 32 verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain... The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and then he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a golden calf. This is, after all, the first high priest. This is, after all, the brother of Moses sent to help Moses remember the burning bush now he's fashioned and made a golden calf at the request of the people think about that how would you feel if you were Moses and you saw all of this and your own brother that was supposed to assist and help you made the golden calf. Don't read too fast past that. Think about that. 
Then they said, oh, it gets worse. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Really? This calf that they had just made at that moment, this is the one who brought you out? Boy, it's horrible when you think about all the implications of that. But it gets worse. Look at verse 5. So when Aaron saw it, he repented and confronted the people about their sin. Is that what your Bible says? No. He built an altar before it. Mm. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. There's just blasphemy dripping off of all of these verses. Verse 6 says, Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings. I'm telling you, that takes some guts. Offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Sounds like modern day church, doesn't it? Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. <coughs> and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. That means stubborn. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. And by the way, the Lord has experience with that because that's what he did with Abraham. God said, get out of my way and let me do what they deserve, basically. Now we might look today and we might think, oh, how harsh and I'm sure glad we don't serve a God like that. But you need to remember, this is the same God in the New Testament. This is the same God who has given you so much grace and sacrificed His Son for your sins. But please don't get the idea that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. Please don't get the idea that the God of the Old Testament was kind of primitive and he grew into the God of the New Testament. Some people teach that. And please don't get the idea that the God of grace who has been so merciful and kind to you that he does not hate your sin any less than he did in here. And please don't get the idea as a child of God that in your humanity, depravity, and sin, that you don't deserve God's anger to burn hot against you and to destroy you. This is why we call it amazing grace, because if we really understood who we are and what we deserve, we would be completely different about our salvation. And we wouldn't be indifferent about our salvation. We would be in awe and amazed that this God would be so kind to sinners 
like you and like me. Now, when I looked at this passage, the first thing that I noticed is this. Notice the rationale for their sin. Nobody sins without thinking about it. Nobody sins without coming to some kind of a conclusion or a reason for it. And you look at these people, they saw that Moses was delayed. Sometimes the timing of God can make you sin. And you might be a person where you say, well, I'm praying about this, and then God doesn't answer in the timetable you wish. And so what happens? Eh, prayer doesn't work for me. I'll quit that, and I'm going back to the bar. I'm going back to my old way of life. This stuff isn't working for me. You're like Peter, who after he denied the Lord and after he's so guilt-ridden, even after the resurrection, he said, I'm going fishing. And he didn't mean just going out recreationally. He was going back to the business he knew and understood, saying, this stuff doesn't work for me. The timing of God sometimes is our rationale for sin. But also notice, too, that the Bible will tell us that um, not only was there this mess up in their minds, with Moses going up there and we don't know where he's gone. We don't know when he's coming back. So we've got to do something. How many times have I heard somebody say, well, I know it wasn't right, but I just couldn't wait any longer. I had to do something. And then to complicate things, they had a compromised leader. Aaron should have said, you stop this mess now and you worship the Lord and you wait for Moses. But they had the audacity, the guts, to go to Moses' own brother and ask Moses' own brother to make them gods that they could follow. That's something. And they said, and as for this Moses, I mean, what do you feel when you read that? It's almost like they're saying, as for, you know, the guy that brought us out here. What's his name? Moses. Yeah, this Moses guy. We have no idea what's become of him. How would you feel if somebody said that about your brother? And yet they're doing that to Aaron. And then Aaron goes along with them and he actually builds the golden calf. Now later on, and we'll probably look at this next week, he tries to tell Moses, well, I put the gold in the fire and this is what came out. Well, that's a lie. Because you see in here, he took it, he asked for it, he melted the gold and then he's the one that made it and fashioned it. They've got a compromised leader. How many times... Have we heard somebody fall into sin and when we ask them, what are you doing? And then they say something like this. Well, the preacher did it. Well, the elders do it. Well, the deacons did it. Well, my Sunday school teacher does it. They're godly people, so this must be okay. And so the rationale, when they tried this and Aaron went along with it, all that did was put wind in their sails. It must be the right thing or Aaron wouldn't go along with it. And notice there's the influence of the world, too. They said to Aaron something very insightful, make us G-O-D-S, gods. Well, they'd been in Egypt all of those years, and Egypt worshipped, they were polytheists, they worshipped many gods, and apparently that wasn't all out of Israel yet, regardless of what God had done for them and said to them and the miracles that had been wrought. Make us gods. They still had the worldly influence. You see, the problem was not for God to get Israel out of Egypt. The big thing that took so long was to get Egypt out of Israel. And so they say, make us gods. They are influenced by the world. 
And so many times we think about things that God says and we think about the things that the world says and we try to mold them together to try to make them fit and we end up compromising the word of God and doing things the world's way. And so uh, this is just amazing to me because they discount the man of God. This Moses, you know, the guy that brought us out of Egypt. Like that's no big deal and like Moses is nothing special. And like Moses doesn't have any kind of authority over them. They've completely dismissed him and you, Aaron, make us. And there they are commanding him. And probably there's the insinuation, you're the second in command. And yet Aaron wasn't commanding anything. He was following these people because they decided they were going to be a democracy that majority would rule and they would do what they wanted to do and they would have their way and Aaron now is following them and going along with it and they are just forgetting God's words his promises and his warnings I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make any graven image remember that they did too and they went right around it overran it and completely violated what God had said in such a short time in fact God even calls attention to that Secondly, I want you to notice the resources, the resources for sin. Had they been in Egypt as slaves, they couldn't have done this because they didn't own anything. And they didn't own anything of value. But you remember that when God brought them out on that Passover night, that he told them, you are to plunder the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were giving the Israelis gold and silver and clothing, saying, please leave our land after that 10th plague hit them. And so now these ex-slaves have an abundance of gold and silver. In fact, that's what they're supposed to build the tabernacle with, the tabernacle that has not yet been built. They've been given the instructions and the materials, but it hadn't been built yet. And so what does Aaron say? Take all of that gold that you had that's hanging out of your ears and bring that to me. And when you think about the number of people and when you think about the amount of gold that it would take to build this calf, that's a lot. And where did they get that? Where did that come from? It came from their deliverance. It came by the grace and blessing of God. And the people of God in the desert are using the resources of God to worship an idol. Let that sink in. But don't look too spiritual. Had a man one time that his daughter got saved and we baptized her. And he came up to me with tears in his eyes. He was so happy because that was all of his kids and promptly quit coming to church. They were too busy going to the lake, too busy traveling, too busy doing other things. Are those things sinful in and of themselves? No. But it was as if he was saying, okay, I've got everything I want out of God. See y'all later. Instead of helping other people's children come to know Christ, he's fishing. Instead of worshiping with the saints, he's fishing, swimming, doing other things. Using the blessings of God to be away from the people of God, away from the church of God, away from the service of God. I've seen people over the decades of ministry I've been in pray, Preacher, please pray that I'll get another job. I can barely feed my family. They were kind of like Uncle Jed, right? Barely kept his family fed. 
Then they got a new job. And in the new job, they bought an RV. Because of the new job, they bought a motorcycle. Because of a new job, they did all that kind of stuff and were traveling and they were never available to the church and there were never any good to the church or any blessing to the church at all. They took the blessings of God and they used it for themselves. I've seen people that do that with sports. God gives them an ability, gives them a talent, and then all of a sudden there's no time to serve God. There's time to travel with the team. There's time to go to practice. There's time to do everything else. But there's no time for God. God's expendable. They use the resources God has given them, and they use it for sinful purposes, just like these people did. It's shocking to think about what they would do with the gold that God had given them in their deliverance when they had been spared from the death of their firstborn, when they had been set free finally after 400 years, when they had walked through the Red Sea on dry land and the Egyptians were drowned after them, and now they're going to take the gold that God had given them, give it to Aaron so that they could make a golden calf. And people are doing the same thing today with what God has given them. We need to reevaluate that kind of stuff and quit taking it so for granted. Thirdly, I want you to notice what they did. As soon as Aaron built this, that instead of confronting the people or repenting or doing anything like that, the very first thing that happens is they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What a horrible, blasphemous, ridiculous thing to say. They had made this thing. That had been fashioned by Aaron. It was made out of the gold that they brought, but yet it was their God. And we always have as humans this tendency to follow, to worship, to revere everything except the God who deserves it. And so we talk about all of the things that we want to have a Christ-centered, godly life, and yet we let ourselves get affected by everything and everyone else around us or by society itself. Our emotions go up and down. Our security is either there or not there. Our sense of well-being is either good or bad based upon what other people say, other people think, how other people treat us. Instead of saying this, I have been accepted by the God of the universe. What more could I want? My sins have been paid for by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What more could I want or ask for? I have a home prepared for me in heaven. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. What more could I want? What more could I ask for? But we try to cover all that up by saying that we love God, by being religious, and that's really what this third point is, the religious cover for sin. Because after they made this blasphemous statement, what did Aaron do? There was an opportunity here. Aaron had messed up. Yeah, but here's an opportunity. He could have gotten right, and he could have done something about this. But no, he encourages them to carry on rather than to stop. You know what he does? He takes this idolatrous thing, and he builds an altar to it. And everybody looking around could say, well, we're still worshiping the God who brought us through the Red Sea, right? We've got the high priest. We've got an altar here. In fact, we'll even bring some sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings. But you notice one thing that was missing in their offerings? Isn't it ironic they didn't bring a sin offering? 
Probably should have. Because they were sure sinning at that particular moment. But they were covering up their sin with a little bit of religion. You see, some of the people that I talked about before, they were well off enough that even though they were never at church and never serving and never with the people of God, but they could cover it up by giving a tithe, by giving an offering. That was their altar they were building before their golden calf. It assuaged their, con their conscience. I've known people that don't repent, but they like to come to church and they like hellfire and damnation preaching. All it does is kind of assuage their conscience. It doesn't change their life. Why? They're putting a religious covering upon their sin. There are people who will be living in sin. I know of a guy that was looking at pornography and engaging in all kinds of perverted sex acts while he was training other people to be a witness for Christ. What does that do? That causes us not to deal with our sin like these people, but we build an altar and we think that maybe I'll give God my sinful leftovers and he's going to be happy. Isn't that what's happening here? And instead of being worshipped, adored, and thanked, and praised, instead of going to God for the atonement of their sin, they are sinning. The sin gets worse and worse and worse. Aaron helps them get worse and worse and worse. And then they had the audacity to build an altar in front of that cow and to bring the offerings that God had commanded except for one. And to bring it in there and to sacrifice it and sprinkle a little religious salt on something and it's got to make it okay because God is a beggar. And God will take anything he can get because he is so desperate, poor little God. No! Our God is in the heavens. Our God does whatever he pleases. Our God is sovereign. And our God deserves the very best of our worship no matter what it may cost us. Isn't that right? So there they are. Altars, offerings, all of this kind of stuff. But then they get down to what they really want to do. They eat and they drink and then they rose up to play. And there's kind of a sexual connotation in that playing. Immorality, things like that. Let's get the God thing out of the way so we can go do what we really want to do. Is that you? I know a lot of people who are like that. A lot of people who are like that. Well, I'm going to go to church, but I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm going to do my daily Bible readings, but I can't wait until... How long is this chapter anyway that I'm reading? Because i got things i got to do, and i got to get on with what I really want to do. Is that you? That's what they were doing here, and that was really where their heart was. The Bible tells us later on in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him... <clears throat> in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river, meaning the Jordan, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. You know what that tells us? All of those years in Egypt, the religion and the philosophies and the lifestyle of the Egyptians had impacted these Jewish people that were enslaved. 
And we find it coming out now. It's squeezing out of them like pus from a wound. Here it comes. It's still there. And as soon as they had the opportunity, as soon as Moses was out of the way, make us gods, right? And they began to worship that God. That, had been an in, that would be an influence on Israel for a lot of years to come. And only the Babylonian exile fixed their problem with idolatry. Well, it's no different today. On December 17th in the Washington Examiner, there was a story about a Lutheran, a Lutheran pastor. Luther must be spinning in his grave. A Lutheran pastor dressed as a drag queen... I know you're picturing that right now. Can you imagine if I came up here in a dress? Shoot, perish the thought, right? And you know what this guy did? He had a prayer time. It's in Chicago. Had a prayer time inviting children to participate in it. So that they could be free and be themselves. A drag queen. A pastor who was a drag queen. Inviting other people, giving an invitation for other people to take that up. Probably behind the pulpit. Maybe even wearing pastoral robes. Reading scripture. Offering prayers. And then coming out before the congregation and inviting children to follow him. You see how we take things together and we kind of, it's called syncretism. We take a little bit from here and a little bit from here and a little bit from here and a little bit from here. And we mold it together into a golden calf and say, behold your God who has delivered you. And then we think somehow the God of heaven is going to be pleased with that. We need to get back to the word of God and see God as he reveals himself in the scripture. Not as we think he ought to be or should be or fashioning him the way we want him to be. Because all you do is take the great God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. And you make him into a stupid golden calf. And you have the stupidity to bow down in front of that as though it's going to have any relevance and any impact positively on your life. People do it all the time, even that pastor in that Lutheran church. And number four, I want you to notice the righteous anger of God towards sin. Now, I put the word righteous in there because God has every right to be angry with these people, just like he does with you or me. He hates sin. He has done so much for us, and yet we sin anyway. Sometimes we run towards sin. We embrace that sin. We weep over that sin if we have to give it up. We mourn over it and grieve over it when it's gone. Folks, our God deserves better of us than that. And you notice here that it's not Moses who comes down from the mountain and sees this and goes, Ah, I can't believe this is happening and breaks the tablets. Moses had no idea what was going on. Scripture tells us in here, and the Lord, verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go and get down. <clears throat> God saw it. Because God sees what you looked at last night on your computer. God sees what you took into your body. 
God sees and knows where your heart is, where you're headed, what you really want to be, what you really want to do. God sees it. He's not unaware. And he's the God who confronts and the God who convicts. And God confronts this, tells Moses to go down there because he's too good a God to let people continue in their sin. Where would you be if Jesus hadn't found you? Where would you be if you had not been saved? Jail? Where would you be? Drunk? High? Where would you be? Sexually perverted? Where would you be if it had not been for the Lord? And his confrontation of you at the point of salvation. Think about Saul of Tarsus on his way to imprison and to murder believers in Damascus. And he met the God of confrontation. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Can you imagine what it was like to hear those words? Saul of Tarsus is gloriously saved and becomes better known as Paul the Apostle because God is a God of confrontation. God is a God of confrontation because he hates sin. But he's also a God who loves his elect. And he's not going to let you go. He's the shepherd that leaves the fold and goes after the one that went astray. That's you. He's the one that confronts us in our sin. And he's the one that saves us out of our sin and brings us out. And you thought it was a preacher. You thought it was somebody who witnessed to you. You thought it was a gospel tract. No, it was God. If you're truly born again, it was God. In Acts chapter 7, 39, when Stephen recounts his story, he says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts, you ready? They returned to Egypt. See, God always deals with the heart. God always deals with the heart. And we're going to see next week that something happened, and it's a picture of what goes on every day, God did not destroy Israel and God did not raise up a new nation out of Moses because Moses was an intercessor and an advocate for Israel. Just like Jesus Christ is an intercessor every time you sin and he is your advocate, your lawyer, your defender whenever you are brought under the accusations of the enemy. Boy, there's a picture here. Do you see the picture? And when I think about all of this, I think about what A.W. Pink says about this. He said, such is the flesh, ever ready to forget God's deliverances, despise the light that he has given us, disobey his commands, act in self-will, and bring in that which effectually shuts him out. Oh, God, bless me. Oh, God, have grace on me. See you next Sunday. Don't bug me until then, God. That's the way a lot of people live. God, help us. God, help us in that whole situation. So what did we 
to do with all of this? What are we to think of? But we need to remember in Psalm 130, it says, If you, Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And that's where it all starts. Do you really recognize how sinful and how quick to sin you really are? So here's what you need to think about and we'll be through. God hates sin as much in the New Testament as he does in the Old Testament. You need to get that in your mind. He still hates and is angry towards sin. You say, what's the difference? The only difference is, for you, his anger was poured out on Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. How bad does God hate sin? Look at a butchered, bloody Savior hanging on a cross. And you'll see what God thinks of sin. He went to that length to forgive your sin because he hates it so much. You know, sometimes we get frustrated with God's timing and we feel justified in sinning. Well, what else was I supposed to do? I had to do something. How about wait on God? How about trust his word? How about claim his promises? Well, I tried that and it didn't work. You didn't do it right. And you certainly didn't do it long enough. You wait, I say, the Bible says, on the Lord. Understand that the blessings of God are not just for your convenience and comfort. They're for his glory. They do not belong to us. You may get a raise and you go, oh, goody, look what I can do with this. It may be God gave you the raise to give more, to bless other people more. Who knows? Wait on the Lord and trust that everything belongs to him. He told Hosea, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. We don't really give God anything that doesn't already belong to him and that he has not given us. What are you using it for? Understand this, that the affirmation of a leader does not give the approval of God to sin. Can you imagine somebody coming up and saying, Pastor, I believe so much in pastoral authority, and I believe that you are the man of God. Stroke my ego, why don't you? I'm getting ready to divorce my wife, and I'd like your blessing. Well, even if I could... <clears throat> Do you suppose that me saying, yeah, I can see that, that'd be a good deal, is the God of heaven saying I put my blessing upon that? Not at all. Not at all. And what did the people do? I promise you that as they looked at this, because Aaron went along with them, they felt like it was the thing to do. Don't put man in the place of God, no matter what position that they occupy. God speaks through his word, and his word is F-I-N-A-L, final. It doesn't change. It can't be compromised. He doesn't negotiate. He means what he says, and he says what he means in his word. No matter what anybody else may say, even if it's a pastor that is a drag queen, that doesn't change God, his standard, or his word, and it does not give legitimacy to that lifestyle. Somebody say amen. amen. It's the way we've got to live. We've got to think. And understand this, God is all-knowing and always present, 
And sin cannot be hidden from him. Even the darkness is light to him. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your motive. He knows what you've done. He knows what you were planning. He knows it all. He knows it all. And understand that if it were not for Jesus, we would all be consumed and we would all be doomed for eternity. You see, why do we call it the gift of confrontation? Because God could have said to Israel, I'm done, just go ahead and do whatever you want, and they would have been in the wilderness indefinitely. And God could have said to you, eh, I don't care, no big deal, do what you want. And you would die in your sins and spend an eternity in torment in hell. Two words change everything. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us, hath made us alive together with him in heavenly places in Christ. And why did he do that? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a confrontation. There's a change. There's a moment where you repent of your sins, believe the gospel, and you were changed. You were born again. You're going a different direction. You're indwelt by a different spirit. You're a child of God. <clears throat> and without that confrontation, you would die and spend eternity in hell. And how much worse even would your physical life be not to mention the afterlife, except for a God who confronts and a God who intervenes. And that's why Jesus was born. That's why he grew to be a man. That's why he lived a perfect and sinless life. That's why he healed the sick and cast out demons. That's why he prophesied. That's why he fulfilled every prophecy written about him and that's why he went to the cross and even Pilate said, I find no fault in him and neither did God the Father. And he died on the cross as our substitute, as our sacrifice, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father and declared Lord of all, given a name that is above every name so that he might intervene in your life and rescue you off of that broad road that leads to destruction and put you on the narrow way by His grace. Because He is a God who loves you just as you are. But don't ever think that means He intends to let you stay as you are. He sanctifies and He disciplines those that He loves. Thank God for His gift of confrontation. In each of us. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes? Would you pray for somebody who desperately needs that right now? It may be a sinning Christian. And they need the confrontation and the divine discipline of God even now. Pray for them. And if you know a lost person. They're going along their merry way on the broad road leading to destruction. And unless God intervenes, they'll never be saved. Oh, pray that God will confront them. And to confront them with their sin. And bring them to the place of repenting 
and believing the gospel. Father, thank you that you care enough not to just leave us alone, not to just punish us, even though we deserve that, not to just let us suffer and languish for eternity in hell, but, oh God, in your rich mercy, you confronted us, you made us alive, you convicted us of our sin, you convinced us that Jesus is who he said he is, and you gave us faith to believe that he is the full sacrifice and payment of our sins, because that's what the scripture teaches. We confess him as Lord because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God, Paul said. And we thank you that it is all of you. Thank you. Please, Lord, continue to confront us, to change us. And Lord, we pray that when you do, you would find a loving, willing, compliant heart and that we would change to what you say. Not resist, not argue, not justify, not give some kind of a false rationale. But, oh Lord, that we would repent and follow you. You're right. You're right. You're always right. And may we be those loving children by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.